The Bob Murphy Show, episode 233. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. We are now on part four of my scintillating series on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, and the Great Reset. So let me, again, try to give you the, the juicy stuff up front and reiterate, make the case for why, Bob, should we care about this Klaus Schwab guy? So what? So in the previous installment, part three, I showcased some quotes where Schwab was bragging about how you know, his, his young leaders, and that's a formal term, you know, he, has a, he had an official program designed to identify these folks and steer them in the ways of... Schwabism and global technocracy, perhaps, how they had penetrated various major governments around the world, the cabinets of major governments around the world, right? So they showed that. I also had a little clip from Biden in the State of the Union saying we could all use a reset, which just sounded kind of awkward and artificial to me. And I think it was a nod to tell these folks that, yes, we are going forward with uh, Delta Plan 7. So in this one, so I, I think I've made the case that this guy, Klaus Schwab, really is plugged in, as I told you at the beginning of this series, back in part one, what made me start really looking into him is when I realized this wasn't just some academic who had some ideas that this, that he was tied in with uh, the British monarchy and various political organizations around the world, various governments, that it was not merely like a business consortium or something that was putting out white papers that these, this World Economic Forum was a big deal. Okay, and so now let me sort of do the flip side of that is to say their agenda is creepy. Okay, that where these people are coming from, when you peel back and see how they look at the world, it should alarm you, all right? So well, I'm going to play a couple clips here from... Um, Awake with JP. So he's a he's got a great YouTube channel, a funny guy, and uh, it started out almost frivolous. His channel it was more, you know he was poking fun at like the you know like the transgender stuff or whatever some of the absurdities coming out of that movement. But it's gotten more serious over time as the situation in general has become more dire, the threat to liberty. So in any event, these first few clips I'm just reproducing from a recent episode of JP's show on YouTube. And so I'll, of course, link to that. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 233 to get that. And here is Schwab explaining the fourth industrial revolution. So remember, we did a whole bunch on this in parts one and two, where I went through his book on the so-called fourth industrial revolution. But here's a snippet of Schwab explaining why this is such a big deal. Difference of this fourth industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take genetic editing, 
Right. Just as an example, it's you who are changing. And of course, this has a big impact on your identity. Okay, so again, they're talking about gene editing and how that's going to change who we are. And okay, fair enough. Now, this is somebody that wasn't on my radar at all in JP's episode feature this guy. So his name is Yuval Noah Harari. And let me just read. So I'm at his own website. Let me just read a little bit of who this guy is. Professor Yuval Noah Harari is a historian, philosopher, and the best-selling author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Homo Deus, and that's D-E-U-S, A Brief History of Tomorrow, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and Sapiens, A Graphic History. His books have sold over 35 million copies in 65 languages, and he's considered one of the world's most influential public intellectuals today. And it goes on to say he's got his PhD from the University of Oxford in 2002, and he currently lectures in the Department of History in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. All right. So let's see some other notables. He gave keynote speeches on the future of humanity in Davos 2020 and 2018 on the World Economic Forum's main Congress Hall stage. Let's see. He's met with Emmanuel Macron, Angelo Merkel, the Argentine president, Shanghai's mayor. And here's one. In 2018, he presented the first ever TED Talk delivered by a digital avatar. So if you were trying to get that accolade, you're too late. All right. So, okay. So this guy, he's, again, the the relevant thing for us is that he twice presented from the main stage at a World Economic Forum meeting. And what's interesting is the slogan, you know, I'm looking at his own website here and, you know, he's got, it's a very nice website and it's got like the rotating images. If you've seen people who have websites like that featuring him, you know, lecturing and action shots and da, da, da. And the slogan that it features at the top of his own website here. So this isn't something Glenn Beck's putting in his mouth. This is what he himself volunteers as summing up what his website's all about is this. And it's in quotation marks. History began when humans invented gods and will end when humans become gods. Okay, so that's interesting. So let's play some clips here. And like I say, some of these are from, I'm just reproducing from JP's episode. So why don't we take a listen to what Yuval Noah Harari had to say to the World Economic Forum attendees. Data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. Now, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough and nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. Evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design 
and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. All right, so there you go. Uh, I just played them all back to back there. And so I saw that stuff on JP's episode, and then I went and dug up what I think is the same talk, like directly at the World Economic Forum's own site. And so this one, the, the title of this is called Will a Future Be Human? And this was from January of 2018, the World Economic Forum. So on YouTube right now, this particular talk that's only half an hour long has just shy of 250,000 views. Okay. And so why don't we play? So first of all, from the very beginning of that here, you know, after he literally cleared his throat and got the lighting to his liking in the auditorium, got his PowerPoint ready. This is how he opened up. And again, the, the title of this was, Will the Future Be Human? I want to talk to you today about the future of our species and really the future of life. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. These will be the main products of the economy, of the 21st century economy. Not textiles and vehicles and weapons, but bodies and brains and minds. All right, so pretty creepy stuff, I think we can all agree. Notice too, though, he's, I guess on the one hand, I'm pleased that he's making a distinction between the brain and the mind. Because notice he said that brains and minds will be the top commodities. Because that's sort of a, a silliness that some materialist atheist types often commit is that they think that there's no such thing as a mind. Like they just talk about a brain or if they use the terms interchangeably. And no, those are clearly distinct things, right? So I'm, on the one hand, I was glad to see that our friend here made the distinction, Harari makes the distinction between brains and minds, but no, but he still thinks they're all going to be produced and sold. And so I think what he has in mind, so the distinction in case you're not, you know, haven't thought about it before. So the brain is the, you know, the physical, biological, what is it? Is an organ <laughs> in your body, right? Like you got the heart, you got lungs, you got blood vessels, you got a stomach and you got a brain. Okay. Whereas the mind is the abstract, well, it's going to be hard for me to define it here. I'm not going to do a good job defining it, but it's it's the abstract thing that processes information. It's, you know, say it's the locus of decision-making in a human being. You know, if you can say things like that, the seat of your consciousness, perhaps, right? So depending on your view of how the world works, there could be a very tight connection between the brain and mind, to be sure. But I'm just saying they are distinct things. And that's not, merely something that Christians would say or, or dualists that, you know, it's even in just standard psychology texts and whatnot, like if they're well-written and the people are sharp, then, you know, they will say that, you know, they'll, they'll be careful to distinguish between the brain and the mind. All right. So I think because Harari is, is making that distinction that he, what he's getting across there is it's not simply that, oh, we will be able to you know, if uh, somebody gets injured and they got shrapnel or something that goes into their brain and, oh, so we got to take their DNA and create 
a new brain in a vat and then pop it into their head to, you know, during the surgery to fix the damaged parts or whatever. He doesn't just mean that. He means if you want people who think a certain way or who, you know, respond in a predictable manner to certain stimuli, then we can do that for you too, right? Now, in this same talk, let me play one more excerpt. Harari shares his views on the socialist calculation debate. Let's put it that way. So let's go ahead and see what he has to say. In the 20th century, democracy generally outperformed dictatorship because democracy was better at processing data and making decisions. We are used to thinking about democracy and dictatorship in ethical or political terms. But actually, these are two different methods to process information. Democracy processes information in a distributed way. It distributes the information and the power to make decisions between many institutions and individuals. Dictatorship, on the other hand, concentrates all the information and power in one place. Now, given the technological conditions of the 20th century, distributed data processing worked better than centralized data processing, which is one of the main reasons why democracy outperformed dictatorship and why, for example, the U.S. economy outperformed the Soviet economy. But this is true only under the unique technological conditions of the 20th century. In the 21st century, new technological revolutions, especially AI and machine learning, might swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. They might make centralized data processing far more efficient than distributed data processing. And if democracy cannot adapt to these new conditions, then humans will come to live under the rule of digital dictatorships. Right, so you you see where these people are coming from. I keep stressing this. Klaus Schwab is not stupid. He's got a PhD in economics and a PhD in engineering. This guy Harari, I think his PhD is from Oxford. I think it's in history. Right? These guys are not dumb. They're, and they're also, they're not Marxists. That, that's the thing. They, they might be socialists. All right? I'm, I'm okay if people want to use that term, but they're not Marxists and they're not naive. Right? So they understand why, and Harari just distilled the viewpoint down there for our benefit. They understand that the U.S. system outperformed the Soviet system in the 1950s through 80s. Okay, so they they're neoliberal in that sense. Okay, now they aren't. My guess is they would not fully be on board with what's considered the neoliberal agenda, but they understand free market economics at least superficially. All right, but they think, oh, this time is different, or the future will be different. Right, that given the technological level of humanity in the 20th century, it just so happened to be the case that decentralized decision-making, you know, private property, market prices and such, that was a superior way of allocating resources than central planning. But that might be different down the road. And notice for Harari, it was, you know, he was a sort of bundling capitalism up with democracy and bundling central planning up with dictatorship. Whereas 
certainly it's not that you could have democracy and not have laissez-faire capitalism, put it that way. The, the other thing is a little bit trickier. So, you know, could you have free market capitalism with a dictatorship? Not really, unless the dictator just legitimately owned everything. And, you know, we're all living on planet Earth that's owned by one guy. Or it could be a woman. Let's let's be fair. So, and that's an interesting debate that economists have about, like some people point to Singapore as like, oh, it's authoritarian, but it's relatively got relatively free markets and stuff like that. So we don't need to get sidetracked by that right now. Let's just focus on the point of this is not for me to delve into the socialist calculation debate. You know what though? If you've never read something on that, if you're curious, I'll, I'll link to at least one thing just real briefly in case you've never heard someone spell it out. So that was one of Ludwig von Mises' most important contributions to economic science. The traditional arguments for socialism versus capitalism went something like this. Like when I say traditional, I mean like in the late 1800s, let's say, that the conservative types who are against socialism said, oh, there's an incentive problem that if people don't get to keep the fruit of their labor, they're not going to work as hard, you know, because they're not just going to produce for the good of society, for their comrades. They're going to, you know, shirk. Or looking at the other way, it's like you need to have garbage men. Let's go ahead and be sexist in society. And not everybody can be an artist or, uh, you know, running the factories and whatnot. And so, you know, how are you going to induce some people to take out the garbage or pick up the garbage, I guess, and other people are going to be librarians, right? You got to have different pay scales and things like that. And, and under socialism or, or old school communism from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, that's just not going to work. It's not reconcilable with human nature. And then there's also the issue of the danger of concentrating political power, right? That's sort of a separate argument from conservative types to warn against the writings of the communists and the socialists in the late 1800s was to say, even if you mean well, you know, maybe the original reformers will genuinely just be trying to help the poor, but megalomaniacs will come by, you know, come through and, and hijack this system and take over. And, and so this is just too, it's unwise to create an apparatus of social control with this much power vested in the hands of a few individuals, which is a distinct argument from the incentive issue, right? And so the socialist theorists, though, they said, no, 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 don't worry about that. Uh, you know, we can have checks and balances. Yeah, we don't want to have a a dictatorship, but if we had a democratic socialism and, you know, where the people periodically vote for who the planners are, then that could be fine. You know, that could check abuses. And uh, as far as the incentive stuff, well, yeah, people who grow up in a doggy dog world of capitalism where everyone's grasping and looking out for numero uno or at best your own family. Yeah, people are real selfish and greedy in that environment, but that's because it's been bred into them. That's not natural. That's not human nature. If we could get to a socialist society, so the argument goes or went, then the people who were born into that world wouldn't feel the need to just look out for numero uno. Like they, they would be happy to produce for the benefit of their neighbors and countrymen, right? So that's the idea. And so the arguments were sort of at an impasse at least when it was when socialism was still largely theoretical, because you know who, who knows maybe they're right, and so it was in that context that Mises then advanced what Austrians call the socialist calculation argument, where Mises argued that 
he, he just stipulated for the sake of argument. He said, no, let's suppose the central planners mean well. They're genuinely trying to help their people, right? So they're not evil. And let's also stipulate away any incentive problems, right? So assume that once the orders come down from on high, is that this is what the plan is. Like you guys over there, you go to this factory. You guys over there, you go to this forest and cut the timber. You guys, you start laying, you know, track for this railroad. And the, and we're going to distribute the food and the housing according to these rules. And everybody's fine with that. You know, you know they're not, not grumbling. Someone's not like, well, this is, this is not fair. I'm working a lot harder than that guy over there. And my family's even bigger. And how come I'm getting fewer meals than he is? And so I'm not going to work as hard. No, no one thinks like that. Everyone just says, yes, sir. And they go ahead and they implement the plan as given to them. Even so, Mises argued, they would be groping in the dark if it were a centrally planned, genuinely centrally planned economy with no genuine market for the means of production, right? If all of the higher or what, when the Austrian frame of higher order goods were owned by the state, then there wouldn't be genuine market prices for them. And so people wouldn't know what the relative economic value of their units would be, right? So you wouldn't know economically how much is one barrel of crude oil compared to, uh, I don't know, a pallet of bricks, right? Whereas in a market economy, and so because of that, there's there's all sorts of technological trade-offs. There's all sorts of different things you could make with a given amount of resources, physical inputs, you know, and, and, and technological know-how and available manpower and different skill types and such, right? So to know what do we have to work with and then what do people want and then to decide how do we come up with a plan to take what we, you know, our resources and transform them into goods and services for the people. There are so many different ways of doing that and different types of things you could make. And notice too, there's a time element, right? You Because you got to decide, do we produce things mostly for the future or more short-term oriented? So there's all sorts of trade-offs involved and pros and cons of different things. And Mises' point was, if all the central planners had was technological know-how, if they just knew the recipes, technically speaking, like, oh, to make a car, you can use this much steel and this much glass and this much rubber and this much labor, blah, 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 that that was not enough information to solve the problem. And when you say, well, okay, well, then how do you solve it? Because you could go ahead and do it, Mises' point was, but then you wouldn't know if there was a better way to do it right? You wouldn't know if you were efficiently using society's scarce resources. You would just know, okay, we had this many resources to start with and we made this many cars and this many houses and this many diapers and blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then to say, did we do a good job? Or, you know, next year, should we tweak the plan? It's, it's not obvious how you would know what the answer was, Mises' point was, right? You could, you could tweak it and you could make more diapers and fewer cars. And then the that would anger the motorists and please the people with newborn babies. So is that the right thing to do? And you might say, well, yeah, because babies are more important than getting around. Well, no, not if you push it too hard. If you just, if you just made diapers and baby formula, and you didn't have any cars. Well, eventually when all the existing cars wore out, then it would be hard to get the baby formula distributed to people who live far away. Just as an example, right? Putting aside the fact that it may be, people's desire to be transported shouldn't count for zero vis-a-vis satisfying newborn's hunger, right? Or what if you, if you made more diapers than could be possibly used by the number of babies that would be born anytime soon? 
right? So that's clearly would be too many diapers, right? So it can't just be some blanket rule that, oh, yeah, yeah, babies are more important than your transportation needs. So you see, once you start getting specific and say, how many of each type of good should we make and where should we make it too? It's not enough just to say, how many diapers does Russia need? It's, well, how many diapers does Moscow need? How many diapers does Stalingrad need or whatever? Okay, so you, you see how once you get specific, it's really hard to solve the calculation problem. So when, you know, Mises is presenting it like that, it almost sounds like, well, this is just impossible. How could anybody solve this? You know, like this isn't just an issue of a socialist regime, just in general, how do humans know what to do? But he says, well, in a market economy with private property and money, you use money prices. And so an individual entrepreneur who is just one little element in the whole system, the whole web is taking some, a small portion of society's scarce resources, transforming them and then making goods and services for their customers. And if they're profitable, then that means they're receiving more total dollars or money units from their customers for the goods and services they're making than they had to pay for the use of the inputs. And so if you think about it, if every single entrepreneur is doing that and engaged in those reflexive or reflective accounting operations, and then the ones that turn a profit tend to expand and the ones that suffer losses tend to shrink, that is the the mechanism by which society, quote, controls or regulates the use of scarce resources and steers them towards ends that the consumers prefer. All right. So I won't dwell on that any longer here because it's supposed to be about Klaus Schwab, but that's that's the general Austrian argument about the socialist calculation problem. So coming back to uh, Harari, he seems to be at least vaguely aware of that. And then his point though is, oh, but now with modern supercomputers and the ability to harness vast amounts of data, perhaps in the near future, it will flip and central decision-making will be superior once again. So incidentally, that's a fallacy that because, and here's just a simple argument to see why, even if it were true that, oh, or let me put it this way, it clearly is true. I'm willing to concede that the uh, Politburo or whoever the heck, you know, was in charge of making the five-year Soviet plans back in the day, let's, you know, say in 1950, they would have benefited from having access to our computers, right? So if there was a time machine and our computer scientists brought back some of the cutting edge machines from today back then, that would have helped them, right? That they could have done a better job centrally planning the Russian or the Soviet economy with today's computers than they could have back then. But if you had those computers at your disposal, what would be even better would be to decentralize, to allow the market price system to go ahead and do that task for you and then allow allow private businesses to use the supercomputers for other things, all right? In other words, if you can use the price system to solve the calculation problem, then that frees up the computers to be able to do something else, all right? So that's a way to answer even on Harari's own terms. And incidentally, Joe Salerno, I think correctly, says that there's an even more fundamental problem that you're just, if you think just using computers will solve the calculation problem, you're, you're missing the point. There's something qualitatively different. In other words, there's an institutional aspect to it, that it's not that private property and the use of money are merely computing devices or computing processes that 
do things that in principle you could have some other computational device solve for you, right? That there, there's something else going on. And, and, and so anyway, I won't delve into that here, but I just do want to acknowledge that. that and this kind of goes back to if you've ever heard Rothbardian types make a distinction between the Hayekian knowledge problem and the Misesian calculation problem. That's, that's what they're referring to here, that it's, it's not merely an issue of, oh, wow, it's, it's too much data to process because partly if you do say that, then it makes Harari look correct. Like, oh, okay, well, now that we got supercomputers, maybe we can solve it. So I'm just pointing out, even if that's what you thought the issue was, no, that's still not correct because now you're tying up these incredible supercomputers doing something that decentralized market processes could do anyway. Okay, so, but for our purposes, though, you, you see the, the creepiness of this so that, you know, taking Klaus Schwab and Harari's perspectives together here, that a lot of these elites who are plugged into the World Economic Forum and, you know, the Bilderberg Group and Council of Foreign Relations and so on, it's not merely, which probably wouldn't surprise you, that they think they know better than the average person, that they, because, you know, their superior intellect and training, but also because they've been privy to these secret meetings and they, they hang out in these circles and they just know that, you know, oh, the reason this invasion occurred or the reason this thing happened or this world event was not what is being promulgated in the major media, whereas we behind the scenes, we really know what was up. Okay. And for me to say that, it doesn't mean every little thing was planned, you know, in the Masonic temple and then everyone got the memo. That, that's not necessarily what I'm saying, but clearly what's going on on the world stage, the way it's being presented to the billions of people who are just the masses, that is not really what's going on, okay? And so I'm saying these people behind the scenes know that. And so what the clips though that I just played you from Klaus and Harari underscore is that the way these people are thinking it's not merely that, oh yeah, we're smarter and we're better informed than the masses. And so that's why it makes sense that we should rule over them. But they're looking forward to a future where they are physically distinct, that they're actually a different species, right? So when you talk about, you know, oh, they look at us as cattle or as, you know, sheep or whatnot, that that's going to be quite literally true. That's not just going to be a metaphor that is, they're going to think that they and their offspring and their buddies are literally a higher form of life, even though in their own worldview, there's no such thing as higher or lower forms of life. But put that aside, no one ever accused these types of being consistent. Okay, so remember in part three, when I was reading from that Strobe Talbot essay on globalism and one world government, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get you to see from their perspective so that you believe me when I say some of these super powerful people, like they really are trying to take over the world. And it's not just because they're monsters and twirling their mustaches is they think like to them, that's as, that makes as much sense as why does the rancher think that he should be in charge of the ranch and that he can put up fences and stuff and decide, you know, where the cattle go. And it's because he's a higher form of life than they are, right? So then that's, of course, he would do that. In fact, it's kind of for the, in the cattle's own interest, really, if you think about it, right? All right, so that kind of mentality. 
Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, let me now jump into some more commentary on Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. So last installment, I read the from the introduction. So again, what they keep hitting over and over, and you see this repeatedly coming out of the WF and quotes from Klaus Schwab, is that, oh, this now changes everything. And this guy, instantly, this guy Harari, I saw he was writing for the, I think, The Guardian and The Economist magazine, or he was being interviewed. And now it's the situation in Ukraine changes everything. So every major event changes everything and, you know, justifies all these plans we've had in place for decades. Okay, so here, page 22 of The Great Reset, Schwab is quoting this guy, Kishore Mabubani, an academic and former diplomat from Singapore who used a boat metaphor. So the 7 billion people who inhabit planet Earth no longer live in more than 100 separate boats. Instead, they all live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. And he said that this is one of the greatest transformations ever. And he said, if we 7.5 billion people are now stuck together on a virus-infected cruise ship, does it make sense to clean and scrub only our personal cabins while ignoring the corridors and air wells outside through which the virus travels? The answer is clearly no. Yet this is what we've been doing. Since we are now in the same boat, humanity has to take care of the global boat as a whole. Okay, and so this, again... They're breaking down barriers, traditional uh, spheres of autonomy, and they're paving the way for, you know, an integrated, globally coordinated power structure that makes all these important decisions. And it's, you know, informed by surveillance around the world. And part of how they justify this is, hey, this is coming, whether you like it or not. You know, and Harari had some allusions to that in the clips I played. And if you went and watched you know, his, his full presentation, you'd, you'd see him elaborate on the steam. That's kind of where they're coming. They're saying, basically, if we just sit back and let things run, you know, let nature take its own course, as it were, it's going to be these major corporations that are going to end up ruling the world. And you don't want that, do you? They're just doing it for profit. You want ethical, responsible, knowledgeable people to be in charge running the world, but they have to be competent too, technically savvy. So like people like us, right? <laughs> we're not capitalists. Believe me, we know that we know the flaws in capitalism. We're socialists, but they're not communists, remember, right? So that's where they're coming from. And that's partly how they sort of justify to the listener, the reader, the viewer, their plans, their agenda is to say, this is coming, whether you like it or not. The only question is who is going to be in charge of this apparatus of social control? Do you want it to be nice people like us? Or do you want it to be money hungry capitalists? So uh, just to underscore what I just said there, page 33, this Klaus and his co-author, just to provide a broad and oversimplified example, the containment of the coronavirus pandemic will necessitate a global surveillance network capable of identifying new outbreaks as soon as they arise, laboratories in multiple locations around the world that can rapidly analyze new viral strains and develop effective treatments, large IT infrastructures so the communities can prepare and react effectively, appropriate and coordinated policy mechanisms to efficiently implement the decisions once they are made and so on. The important point is this, each separate activity by itself is necessary to address the pandemic, but is insufficient if not considered in conjunction with the others. It follows that this complex adaptive system is greater than the sum of its parts. 
All right. So you can see again that they're saying it's not enough. You know, we need the global surveillance. We need this ability. You know, our hands have been tied. Look at how inept certain governments were during this crisis. That's why we need to change everything. We need to have a smooth, top-down, fluid system. You know, they can't be hobbled by constitutions and periodic elections and things. You need to have experts in charge of these various things because when the next pandemic hits, we need to go. We can't just be dawdling and waiting to see if, uh, you know, the, the masses who watch Tucker Carlson are okay with this. Right? Obviously, I'm riffing a little bit here. He didn't say all that in those words, but that's where they're coming from. Okay, when I skip ahead, this is page 44. So in this section, he's talking about the macro reset. So here, I'll, I'll spend most of the time in this area just because this is about macroeconomics where, you know, it's... So even though Klaus has a PhD in economics, when I read this book, I downgraded my opinion of him. So, so yes, he's a smart guy, but I don't think he's a good economist, all right? Um, so page 44... The logical conclusion of these two points is this. Governments must do whatever it takes and spend whatever it costs in the interest of our health and our collective wealth for the economy to recover sustainably. As both an economist and public health specialist put it, and then in quotes, only saving lives will save livelihoods. Making it clear that only policy measures that place people's health at their core will enable an economic recovery. And then he says... Only, this is Klaus, only future data and subsequent analysis will provide incontrovertible proof that the trade-off between health and the economy does not exist. So I underlined that and said, huh? And then Margaret, because that, that's a weird thing to say. I mean, you can give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe what he just meant was, right now we don't know and only the time will tell. But at face value, what it's saying is, you know, Klaus is telling us there is no trade-off between health and the economy. And he's saying only future data and subsequent analysis will provide incontrovertible proof. So it's just weird that he's like assuring us of what he's admitting. We don't actually know this for sure yet, but trust me, the data will bear this out. And it's ironic too, because for those of you who've been following this stuff, you know that no, the, the jury for sure is still out on that, if not coming in to say at the very least that the trade-off is starker than many of the lockdown proponents would have had you believe. All right. Um, it's not worth me dwelling on this, but he, he goes on to argue that the study by the Imperial College London argued that wide-scale rigorous lockdowns imposed in March 2020 averted 3.1 million deaths in 11 European countries. And I think there are serious methodological problems with that study and others that I've seen. So, but I won't get into the specifics there. But again, my point being that you could argue, well, Klaus doesn't actually believe this stuff, Bob. This is just, you know, the rhetoric and the justification he's using for whatever the secret agenda. Okay, fine. Fair enough. But if we take him at face value and the arguments he's leveling in here, they're not good arguments. And he's being sloppy by citing studies to say, oh, this is showing that, you know, lockdowns worked and there's no trade-off between health and safety. Another issue is that Klaus keeps, and now we're on a first-name basis apparently, conflating the pandemic with government response to the pandemic, right? So when I said there, when I just even said a minute ago, there's no trade-off between health and the economy, I might've said health and safety, but if I did, I misspoke. I meant there's no trade-off between health and the economy. And he, that actually, I, that's probably largely true, or at least in a certain sense, just like, I don't think there's a trade-off between freedom and safety. That, that may have been what I was thinking of if I did misspeak and said health and safety, that normally the, 
the alleged trade-off is between freedom and safety. And I want to say, no, there isn't in reality. That when the government takes away your freedoms in the name of keeping you safe, you are less free and less safe. Okay, but there's a similar pattern where if the government locks down the economy, then that certainly does hurt economic growth, right? Whereas Klaus is trying to argue the opposite, that no, because people were worried about the virus, they weren't going to go shopping anyway. And it was aggressive public health measures that eventually would get us through this and get you know the economy reopened as quickly as possible. So that's what he means when he said there's no real trade-off involved. And I'm saying actually there is, if you're talking about government policies. And so if an example of how I think he's conflating those two, page 46, he says, the shock that the pandemic has inflicted on the global economy has been more severe and has occurred much faster than anything else in recorded economic history. Even in the Great Depression in the early 30s, in the Great Financial Crisis in the 2008, it took several years for GDP to contract by 10% or more and for unemployment to soar above 10%. And then he says, but with the pandemic, that happened much more quickly. But again, no, it was not the pandemic per se that made unemployment shoot above 10% or made economic output contract. It was government-imposed lockdowns, all right? So it's an open question what would have happened. So again, I, I can't be certain of what would have happened if governments hadn't done anything coercive and had just you know issued public health recommendations. But certainly the speed with which the economy came to a screeching halt and unemployment shut up was clearly due to the aggressive lockdowns that kind of shocked everybody, put it that way. Also too, with this stuff, they're trying to have it both ways. So which is it? If everybody would have just stayed home anyway, and so the economic crash and unemployment spike would have happened with or without government coercive measures, well, then what's the point of those coercive measures, right? So again, it's, it's, they're, they're sort of being slippery and trying to have it both ways. If you need an aggressive government response to contain a pandemic, then don't insult us by saying, oh, forcing everybody to stay home didn't really affect the economy because people would have stayed home anyway. Well, okay, well, then you didn't need to force them to do it. To give an example of why he's just not a good economist. So pages 50 to 51, Schwab is talking about for the countries that have exited lockdown, it's too soon to tell how their GDP growth will evolve. Like, will it be a V-shaped curve or whatever? And then he says, there's two reasons to not get carried away and expect there to be a strong rebound. So number one, the marked improvement in PMI, purchasing manufacturing indices, in the Eurozone and the US does not mean that these economies have turned the corner. It simply indicates that business activity has improved compared to previous months, okay? And then number two, and this is the one I want to focus on, in terms of future growth, one of the most meaningful indicators to watch is the savings rate. He says, in April, the U.S. personal savings rate climbed to 33%, while in the Eurozone, the household savings rate rose to 19%. They will both significantly drop as the economies reopen, but probably not enough to prevent these rates from remaining at historically elevated levels. Okay, so at first, I thought I was proud of him. I thought he was saying, oh, so the high savings rate means there'll be future growth. I think he's saying the opposite. I think he's saying with these high savings rates, how can you expect spending to spur economic growth? And you, we're not going to you know, really get back on track with GDP growth until people stop with this panic saving. I think that's actually what his point is there, which is, again, very short-term Keynesian thinking that no, especially when you're talking about long-term economic growth, high saving rates are a good thing. But 
in Klaus's worldview, they're not. And again, he's not, he's just being a typical Keynesian there. Okay, let me just give an example because there's, this sort of stuff happens a lot in the discussion, but let me just go ahead and read this example here. This is from page 63. Innovation in production, distribution, and business models can generate efficiency gains and new or better products that create higher value added, leading to new jobs and economic prosperity. Governments thus have tools at their disposal to make the shift towards more inclusive and sustainable prosperity, combining public sector direction setting and incentives with commercial innovation capacity through a fundamental rethinking of markets and their role in our economy and society. This requires investing differently and deliberately in the frontier markets outlined above, which I didn't read for you guys, areas where market forces could have a transformative effect on economies and societies, but where some of the necessary preconditions to function are still lacking. Shaping the rules and mechanisms of these new markets can have a transformational impact on the economy. If governments want to shift to a new and better kind of growth, they have a window of opportunity to act now to create incentives for innovation and creativity in the areas outlined above. All right, and then let me just wrap up this episode with this paragraph here. Um, so he's saying, some have called for degrowth, a movement that embraces zero or even negative GDP growth. He says, however, beware of the pursuit of degrowth proving as directionless as the pursuit of growth. The most forward-looking countries and their governments will instead prioritize a more inclusive and sustainable approach to managing and measuring their economies, one that also drives job growth, improvements, living standards, and safeguards the planet. The technology to do more with less already exists. There is no fundamental trade-off between economic, social, and environmental factors if we adopt this more holistic and longer-term approach to defining progress and incentivizing investment in green and social frontier markets. Okay, so what he's getting at in those sections is his point is we cannot continue with the status quo, this old system of decentralized market forces, rugged individualism, let each firm pursue what's in the best interest of its shareholders. That clearly doesn't work. That's led to, you know, the pandemic, that sort of thinking, and catastrophic climate change, if we just continue down that path. So we got to change. We need to just fundamentally transform the way our economies work, and governments have a huge role to play in that. However, he's arguing, let's not just be completely naive and just, you know, hippies that just say, oh, so let's just stop GDP growth now and let's just pick roses and, and daisies and such. He's saying, no, there's, we, we need to have increased economic output to help the world's poor and blah, blah, blah. Right? And so what we need is a, is a balance between these two. Okay, so it's sober-minded analysis, but yet it's always on the context of disaster is looming if we don't act now and you need to take my advice and transform the way this whole system works. But don't worry, things will be even better, right? So don't listen to the fear mongers telling you that my proposals will wreck the economy. They won't. But if you don't listen to me, then there really is going to be, <laughs> you should be afraid. Okay, we will wrap it up there for this episode. So we'll, I'll, I'll just make an executive decision. Say, we'll, we'll do one more, right? So the I have enough material that I want to go through in his book, but I don't want to squeeze it into this episode. We've already gone long. And so I will wrap it up in, the, in part five where I'll finish the treatment of COVID-19, the Great Reset from Klaus Schwab and his co-author Thierry Mellorette. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. 
For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.